0: Planning for battle When you're not starving, when you have glucose, you can prepare for the battle of the bulge with some of the classic self-control strategies, starting with pre-commitment. The ultimate surefire form of pre-commitment, the true equivalent of Odysseus tying himself to the mast, would be gastric bypass surgery, which would physically prevent you from eating. But there are lots of more modest forms. You can begin by simply keeping fattening food out of reach and out of sight. You'll conserve willpower, as the women in the experiment did when the M&Ms were moved out of reach, at the same time that you're avoiding calories. In one experiment, office workers ate a third less candy when it was kept inside a drawer, rather than on top of their desks. A simple commitment strategy for avoiding late-night snacking is to brush your teeth early in the evening while you're still full from dinner and before the late-night snacking temptation sets in. Although it won't physically prevent you from eating, brushing your teeth is such an ingrained pre-bedtime habit that it unconsciously cues you not to eat anymore. On a conscious level, moreover, it makes snacking seem less attractive. You have to balance your greedy impulse for sugar against your lazy impulse to avoid having to brush your teeth again. You can consider more elaborate commitment devices, like placing a bet with a bookmaker, or by locking in a weight loss agreement at websites like fatbet.net or stick.com, which allow you to name your own goals along with penalties. A tough penalty, like committing yourself to donate hundreds or thousands of dollars to a cause you detest, can make a difference. But don't expect money to work miracles when you set an impossible goal. Losing 5 or 10% of your weight is a realistic goal, But beyond that, it becomes difficult to overcome the body's natural propensities. The typical better at the William Hill Agency sets a goal of losing nearly 3 pounds per week for a total of almost 80 pounds. No wonder so many of them fail. The people putting up their money at stick.com have a much better track record thanks to the website's policy of forbidding anyone from setting a goal of losing more than 2 pounds per week or 18.5% of their body weight. It's possible to lose a lot of weight quickly by drastically altering your eating, but what good will that do if the regimen is too strict to follow permanently? Better to make smaller changes that can be sustained over the long haul. Take your time reaching your goal, and then don't let up, because the hardest part is keeping the weight off. If you use a system of rewards and penalties to reach your weight loss goal, keep using the same kinds of incentives to maintain your weight. You can also try a strategy that psychologists call an implementation intention, which is a way to reduce the amount of time and effort you spend controlling your thoughts. Instead of making general plans to reduce calories, you make highly specific plans for automatic behavior in certain situations, like what to do when you're tempted by fattening food at a party. An implementation intention takes the form of if-then. If X happens, I will do Y. The more you use this technique to transfer the control of your behavior to automatic processes, the less effort you will expend. This was demonstrated in some experiments involving the classic Stroop test of mental effort that was described in Chapter 1, identifying mislabeled colors. If you see the word green, printed in green ink, you can quickly identify the color of the ink. But it takes longer if the green ink is being used to form the word blue and it takes still longer if your willpower has been depleted beforehand, as English researchers did with the people in one experiment. But they found it was possible to compensate for this weaker willpower by training people to ease the strain on their minds. Before the ink-color-identifying task began, the people would form an implementation plan. If I see a word, I will ignore its meaning and look only at the second letter and the color of the ink. This specific if-then plan made their task more automatic, requiring less conscious mental effort and therefore doable even when their willpower was already weakened. So before you get tempted by the food at a party, you can prepare yourself with a plan like if they serve chips, I will refuse them all. Or if there is a buffet, I will eat only vegetables and lean meat. It's a simple but surprisingly effective way to gain self-control. By making the decision to pass up the chips an automatic process, you can do it fairly effortlessly even late in the day when your supply of willpower is low. And because it's relatively effortless, you can pass up the chips and still have enough willpower to deal with the next temptation at the party. For a more radical form of pre-commitment, you could skip the party altogether and seek out gatherings with low-calorie offerings and thinner people. We're not suggesting you dump your chubby friends but there does seem to be a connection between what you weigh and whom you socialize with. Researchers who have analyzed social networks find that obese people tend to cluster together, as do thin people. Social distance seems to matter more than physical distance. Your chances of being obese increase more because your best friend gains weight than because your next-door neighbor gains weight. It's difficult to disentangle cause and effect. No doubt people are seeking out others who share their habits and tastes but it's also true that people reinforce one another's behavior and standards. One reason why members of Weight Watchers shed pounds, at least for a while, is that they're spending more time with other people who care about losing weight. It's the same phenomenon we noted earlier with smokers, who are more likely to quit if their friends and relatives also quit. Peer pressure helps explain why people in Europe weigh less than Americans. They follow different social norms, like eating only at mealtimes instead of snacking throughout the day. When European social scientists come to the United States to study eating habits in campus laboratories, they're surprised to discover that they can run experiments whenever they want to because American college students are happy to eat food any time of the morning or afternoon. In France or Italy, it can be hard to find a restaurant open except at mealtimes. Those social norms produce habits that conserve willpower through automatic mental processes. Instead of consciously trying to decide whether to snack, instead of struggling with temptation, Europeans rely on the equivalent of an implementation plan. If it's 4 p.m., then I won't eat anything. Let me count the ways and the calories. If you're trying to lose weight, how often should you weigh yourself? The standard advice used to be not to get on the scale every day because your weight naturally fluctuates and you'll get discouraged on days it goes up for no apparent reason. If you want to keep up your motivation, the weight loss expert said, you should weigh yourself just once a week. That advice seemed odd to Baumeister and other self-control researchers because their work on other problems consistently showed that frequent monitoring improved self-control. Eventually, A careful long-term study tracked people who'd lost weight and were trying not to regain it. Some of these people weighed themselves daily, others didn't. It turned out that the conventional wisdom was wrong. The people who weighed themselves every day were much more successful at keeping their weight from creeping back up. They were less likely to go on eating binges, and they didn't show any signs of disillusion or other distress from the daily confrontation with the scale. For all the peculiar challenges to losing weight, one of the usual strategies is still effective. The more carefully and frequently you monitor yourself, the better you'll control yourself. If it seems like too much of a chore to write down your weight every day, you can outsource some of the drudgery by using a scale that keeps an electronic record of your weight. Some models will transmit each day's reading to your computer or smartphone, which can then produce a chart for your monitoring pleasure or displeasure. Even a very simple form of monitoring can make a big difference, as researchers discovered when they investigated an odd little mystery. Why do prisoners put on weight? Clearly, it's not because of the irresistible prison cuisine. No gourmet chef is ever hired to cook when the clientele consists of customers who are literally captive. Yet men consistently come out of prison fatter than when they went in. The reason, according to Cornell's Brian Wansink, is that prisoners don't wear belts or tight-fitting clothes. In their jumpsuits and loose pants, they don't get the little signals of weight gain that other people get when their pants feel tighter and their belts have to be loosened a notch. Besides monitoring your body, you can monitor what food you put into it. If you conscientiously keep a record of all the food you eat, you'll probably consume fewer calories. In one study, Those who kept a food diary lost twice as much weight as those who used other techniques. It also helps to record how many calories are in the food, although that's notoriously tricky to estimate. All of us, even professional dietitians, tend to underestimate how much food is on a plate, especially when confronted with large portions. We've been further confused by the warnings of nutritionists and the tricks of food companies who will use a label like low-fat or organic to create what researchers call a health halo. Tierney investigated this phenomenon in the nutritionally correct neighborhood of Park Slope, Brooklyn, with an experiment designed by two researchers, Pierre Chandon and Alexander Cherneff. Some of the Park Slopers were shown pictures of an Applebee's meal consisting of chicken salad and a Pepsi. Others were shown the identical meal, plus some crackers prominently labeled trans-fat-free. The people were so entranced by the crackers' virtuous label that their estimate for the meal with crackers was lower than for the same meal without crackers. The label magically translated into negative calories, both in the informal experiment in Park Slope and in a formal peer review study published later by Chernev. Other studies have shown that both laypeople and nutritional experts consistently underestimate the calories in food labeled low-fat and consequently take bigger helpings. To overcome these problems, you can try paying more attention to the calorie count of food when it's available on a label or a menu, or when you've got a smartphone with an app that monitors calories. When the calorie count is not available, you can at least try to pay attention to the food in front of you, which few people do. The two most common activities that are combined with eating are socializing and watching television, and both are associated with increased calorie consumption. Researchers have repeatedly shown that eating in front of the television increases snacking and that viewers will eat more when their attention is engaged, as in a well-executed comedy or horror film, than when they're watching something boring. In one study, female dieters tripled the amount of food they ate when they were absorbed in a film. People tend to eat more at meals with friends and family when they're paying more attention to the company and less to what they eat. Add wine or beer, and they'll pay still less attention, because alcohol reduces self-awareness and therefore impairs monitoring. Even when they're sober, diners can be so oblivious that they'll go on sipping soup from a bowl that is continuously and surreptitiously refilled, as Brian Wansink demonstrated in a famous experiment at Cornell, using soup bowls attached to hidden tubes. The people just went on sipping from the bottomless bowl because they were so used to eating whatever was put in front of them. If you're guided by external cues instead of your own appetite, you're vulnerable to gaining weight whenever you're served large portions, which can easily happen without your being aware of it. When food is served on large plates or when drinks are poured in wide glasses, you tend to underestimate how many extra calories are being added because you don't have a good intuitive sense of three-dimensional volume. If a movie theater simply changed one dimension of a popcorn bag by, say, tripling its height, you could see right away that it holds three times as much popcorn. But when the bag gets simultaneously wider, deeper, and taller, it can triple in volume without looking three times as big. So you order the large and then eat the whole thing. You can't control what kind of packaging and plates are used in theaters and restaurants, but at home, you can reduce your portions by using small plates and thin glasses. You can also make it easier to monitor your eating by not clearing the table too quickly. In an experiment at a sports bar, people ate far fewer chicken wings when the waiters left the discarded bones on their plates. At other tables, where the waiters zealously cleared away the bones, people could fool themselves into forgetting how many wings they'd eaten, but that was impossible at the tables still holding the evidence. The bones did the monitoring for them. Never say never. The results of dieting research tend to be depressing. But every now and then, there's an exception. And we saved our favorite cheery finding for last. It's from a dessert cart experiment conducted by marketing researchers trying to figure out the central problem of self-control. Why is self-denial so difficult? As Mark Twain put it in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, To promise not to do a thing is the surest way in the world to make a body want to go and do that very thing. That's one of the more frustrating aspects of the human psyche, but the researchers Nicole Mead and Vanessa Patrick looked for relief by considering different kinds of self-denial. They started with some mental experiments using pictures of tasty, appealing foods. The experimental subjects were told to imagine these delicacies being offered on a dessert cart in a restaurant. Some imagined choosing their favorite and eating it. The rest, however, imagined passing up dessert in one of two ways. By random assignment, some imagined that they had decided not to eat these desserts at all, and the others imagined that they had told themselves not to have any now, but that they would indulge at some later time. It was the difference between pleasure denied and pleasure postponed. Afterward, the experimenters measured how often the people were troubled or distracted by yearnings for the desserts. These researchers knew that unfinished tasks tend to intrude on the mind, due to the Zygarnik effect, which we discussed earlier, so they expected the desserts to be especially distracting to the people who had postponed the pleasure. Surprisingly though, the people who had told themselves, not now, but later, were less troubled with visions of chocolate cake than the other two groups, both the ones who had imagined eating it and the ones who had flatly denied themselves the pleasure. The researchers had expected the outright denial to cause fewer yearnings because the mind would consider the case closed, no more debate. But the opposite happened. The postponed pleasures did not intrude as much as the foregone ones. When it came to dessert, the mind wouldn't take no for an answer at least not in this mental experiment. But what if real food was involved? To find out, the researchers brought people in one at a time to watch a short film while sitting next to a bowl of M&Ms, a perpetual favorite in laboratories because they're so easy to work with. No muss, no fuss. Some people were told to imagine they had decided to eat as much as they wanted while watching the movie. Others were told to imagine they had decided not to eat any of the candy. A third group was told to imagine they had decided not to eat the M&Ms now, but would have them later on. In general, the instructions were effective. The ones told to assume that they had decided to eat actually did eat considerably more than the ones told to deny or postpone the pleasure. The study proceeded through some questionnaires, after which the experimenter, falsely, said the experiment was now over. Each person was asked to remain and fill out one more questionnaire which was ostensibly concerned with the quality of the laboratory setting. Then, seemingly as an afterthought, the experimenter gave the bowl of M&Ms back to the person and said, you're the last subject we have today, and everyone else has gone, so these are left over. Help yourself. The experimenter exited, leaving the participant alone to fill out the questionnaire and eat his or her fill, apparently without anyone watching or caring. But, as usual, the researchers cared very much, They had weighed the bowl beforehand and weighed it once again after the participant left. Left alone in that room with the M&Ms, the people who told themselves to postpone pleasure had a golden opportunity to indulge themselves. You'd expect them to scarf the M&Ms, while the people who'd sworn off the candy would either remain strong or perhaps just nibble. But exactly the opposite occurred. Those in the postponement condition actually ate significantly less than those in the self-denial condition. The findings would have been impressive if people had merely eaten equal amounts in the postponement condition and the refusal condition. After all, the ones in the postponement condition were fully expecting to enjoy the treats later. The fact that they ate less than the others is remarkable. The results suggest that telling yourself, I can have this later, operates in the mind a bit like having it now. It satisfies the craving to some degree and can be even more effective at suppressing the appetite than actually eating the treat. During that final part of the experiment, when all the people were left alone with a bowl of M&Ms, the ones who'd postponed pleasure ate even less than the people who had earlier allowed themselves to eat the candy at will. Moreover, the suppression effect seemed to last outside the laboratory. The day after the experiment, all the people were sent an email with a question. How much do you desire M&M candies at this very moment if someone offered them to you? Those who had postponed gratification reported less desire to eat the candy than either the people who had refused the pleasure outright or those who had eaten their fill. It takes willpower to turn down dessert, but apparently it's less stressful on the mind to say later rather than never. In the long run, you end up wanting less and also consuming less. Plus, you may derive more pleasure because of another effect that was demonstrated in a different sort of experiment, asking people how much they'd be willing to pay to kiss their favorite movie star today, or how much they'd pay for a kiss three days from now. Ordinarily, people will pay more for an immediate pleasure, but in this case, they were willing to spend extra money to postpone the kiss, because it would let them spend three days savoring the prospect. Similarly, Delaying the gratification of creme brulee, or molten chocolate cake, gives time to enjoy the anticipation. As a result of that advanced pleasure, when you ultimately do indulge, you may find less of a need to binge and more of an inclination to eat moderately. In contrast, when you swear off something altogether and then finally give in, you say, what the hell, and gorge yourself. So when it comes to food, never say never. When the dessert cart arrives, don't gaze longingly at forbidden treats. Vow that you will eat all of them sooner or later, but just not tonight. In the spirit of Scarlet O'Hara, tell yourself, Tomorrow is another taste.